Welcome back here. This is Reading Through the Old Testament, um, the story of the Old Testament. We are <clears throat> reading through uh, Genesis chapter 13 through 23 uh, for uh, the week of January 8th through 14th. And we are here um, learning about the life of Abraham, about his uh, life, uh, the God that he serves, and uh, about how we can find Christ here as well, our Savior, and the same gospel proclaimed to us as it was to them uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. Well, last week, we walked through a very long episode, um, but I know you enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, it was not a burden for you to get through, I know. it. Uh, you were probably saying, yes, yes, Pastor Spencer, more, more. Um, and so... Um, that's I know that's that's probably what you were thinking as well. So, uh, but today we're going to go a little shorter than than that, obviously. Um, but there was so much to uh, cover uh, as we walked through the the story of creation that leads all the way to Abraham in Genesis chapter twelve. So we we started with creation. You remember we talked about the fall, uh, redemption, the promise of the coming offspring of the woman. And that really is the governing promise, the foundational promise that the rest of the whole Bible is about uncovering and showing us. Um, and so we saw the, the, the hope of resurrection that these men of dust had looking towards the man from heaven. And we saw the baptism of the whole earth with the judgment waters coming over the earth and then Noah coming up on a new creation, uh, a new world in a sense. And we saw that even though God had washed the whole earth through judgment and purified it, um, the curse still remains. Noah was not that promised one, uh, although he foreshadows and looks forward to uh, that promised one. And then we saw the Tower of Babel, you might remember, and how, um, and, uh, how uh, they, these people sought to build an, a tower, a name for themselves in that tower, and how God came down and um, disp dispersed them and uh, confused their language and how uh, then God comes though to a, an old man with a wife who's barren and says I'm going to make your name great you see names are something God gives we don't we can't earn it we can't try to make our name great ultimately it's only all a gift from the God of grace and so here's Abram Abram and his wife Sarai former pagans who have been called by this God, uh, the God of heaven and of earth, the God of the promise of the offspring of the woman, the, the Lord. And they have been called out from their homeland, out from Ur of the Chaldeans and out from Haran to a land that God has come to show them, the land of Canaan. And they go in there in Genesis chapter 12, they go to the land and Abram brings with him his nephew Lot and they go there, and God reaffirms his promise to make him into a great nation. He promises him land. He promises him blessing. He promises that through him, ultimately, this is going to be part of the saving purposes of God to bless the whole world. And of course, remind yourselves, this would have been a very important thing for the Israelites, who are the original hearers of this story, to get down. 
their redemption was not ultimately so that it was all about them and their real estate in the Middle East. Their redemption was part ultimately of God's worldwide plan to save the human race. And that's what is going on here in the life of Abram and Sarai. Last week, we also ended with uh, kind of a foretaste of what was going to happen with Israel and Egypt whenever Sarai is, uh, in a sense, held captive by Pharaoh, and she is redeemed through plagues and judgments that God sends, and eventually Abram and Sarai leave Egypt, go back to the promised land, and they leave uh, very wealthy very blessed by God in, uh, despite Abram's uh, sin of lying about who his wife was, um, God still blesses them. And so then in chapter 13, as we go here now, we see what life is like in the land uh, with Abram. And we see that Abram and Lot separate. Uh, Lot takes one part of the promised land and uh, they say, listen, we don't want any strife between us because they're all wealthy now in a sense, I guess. Um, and uh, and so now they, they decide to split up and uh, God promises Abram uh, his offspring will possess this land. And he will, he says in verse 16 of chapter 13, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And Abram there builds an altar to the Lord, serves the Lord, worships him, um, and trusts in him. And this has got to be very difficult for Abram, right? All he has to go on is a promise of God. That is all he has to go on. He has no ordinary human way to believe that his barren wife will be able to give birth to children. No way that this uh, ordinarily should take place. And he's going to have to wait for a while uh, for this promise to be fulfilled. And then in Genesis chapter 14, we see that Abram uh, gets involved and his nephew Lot, they get involved in some kind of warfare. Um, Here, Lot gets uh, taken captive and uh, Abram is here and he um, goes and rescues him. Uh, because remember, Lot is dwelling near Sodom, and we kind of hear those dark over undertones uh, starting to, to come to the fore because we know the way the story goes, but Lot is dwelling near Sodom. And we know what's going to happen one day to Sodom, and that's that choice that uh, Lot has made there. But God here blesses Abram, gives him military victory. Abram here looks like a king, He acts like a king. He fights kings, defeats kings, and is blessed by this unique character named Melchizedek. Um, Again, not much is known about him. He comes out bringing bread and wine, and he uh, blesses Abram by God Most High. Um, And so this mysterious character uh, comes forth, reaffirming the blessing that Abram is going to have. And Abram gives this Melchizedek a, a, um, a tenth of all that he has. And eventually here, Abram says, I, he tells these kings, um, you know, I don't want to take anything from you. And, um, and he, after this victory that he's done. Well, it's at this moment that you could think that perhaps Abram is thinking, okay, I'm in this land. I'm having to fight battles, military battles. Um, Abram is now, by God's blessing, become uh, large enough to where he has a 
a fighting group of men uh, as part of his household. He uh, is, in a sense, slowly becoming a uh, force to be reckoned with in um, this area. People have to know that that man has, the Abram is, is, uh, has been blessed by God with uh, riches, with wealth, and <clears throat> he has a fighting force. Um, he's just defeated these kings. But the one thing he lacks still is a child, an offspring that God promised him. That's the one thing, right? I'm supposed to become a great nation, and a lot of stuff is happening, uh, but where's this child at? And so Abram, uh, the Lord comes to Abram and says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So here's Abram. He's he doesn't understand how this can happen. If God's given him this promise, why hasn't he fulfilled it yet? Okay, so here's where I want to start some of our readings. Uh, these are going to be all, all of them from Chadbird, and I've stolen them from the 1517 website, uh, edited in a, just a very few small places. Um, but anyway, uh, just for you, so this is Genesis 15. This article is titled, We Expect Too Little from God. He says this, um, we shrink away from God's goodness and almightiness. And so we shrink down our prayers. Perhaps it is a lack of faith. We don't trust God to give what he himself has promised to give. When God comes to us, he brings more than we expect. Our expectations are tiny, his gifts large. We ask for a drop and he pours an ocean. For a morsel and he spreads a feast. Such is the difference between man and God. Despite the fact that our lives are supposedly so global these days, our worlds are minuscule. Their, circum- their, circumferences, their circumferences aren't much bigger than the decorative bowl globes we can spin with one finger. The global financial crisis is no bigger to us than the mortgage we may not be able to pay this month. Global communications no bigger than the phone call from a friend that, we, that may not come when we need it. My world is small full of the continents of my emotions, the oceans of my fears, the mountains of my hopes and and dreams and nightmares. I am not much different from Abraham. God Almighty appears to him, but all Abraham asks about is a baby, his baby, Sarah's baby, the one still but a gleam in Abraham's dreary eyes. Tell me about this baby, God, my baby that you promised would come and hasn't. You tell me not to fear, but how is an old man not to fear that he will die childless? You tell me you are my shield, but can a shield arrest all these arrows of doubt? You tell me my reward shall be very great, but the only reward I see is me dying and leaving my inheritance not to a son, but to a servant. You promise me the world, but all I see is dust falling between my wrinkled fingers back to the earth that soon shall swaddle my bones." So God expands Abraham's world. He takes him by the arm and ushers him outside. He points his eyes starward and tells him to do the arithmetic. Put a number on those faraway sons, Abraham. Go ahead. So shall your descendants be. Astronomy became theology. You want a baby? 
Very well. Then I'll give you a child, and I'll give him children, and those children more children, until the stars themselves shall blink in astonishment at the number of your offspring. You expect too little from God. He wants to give you the world, and you beg for a grain of sand. Perhaps it is cowardice. We shrink away from God's godness and almightiness, and so shrink down our prayers. Perhaps it is a lack of faith. We don't trust God to give what he himself has promised to give. Perhaps it is self-sufficiency. We want to take care of ourselves, for we suppose we're just fine flying solo. But God doesn't appear to Abraham or to you as a tight-fisted miser. He's anything but that. To Abraham, he promises a soon-to-be-born baby, a world of descendants, the Holy Land, and his family's rescue from Egypt when that day comes. He's going to give it all, and then some, and then some more. And just when you think he's out, he'll show up once more and surprise you with grace. You may or may not believe this, but your belief or the lack thereof changes nothing. You can believe the earth is flat or that politicians will soon stop lying, but your belief won't alter reality. Reality is that God is good. His goodness knows no bounds. Your unbelief will not bind him. Your ungreat expectations of him will not bind him. He will be bound by no man from being good to that man, whether the man desires, expects, or curses the gift of God when it lands in his lap. Abraham was eager for something tangible by which to know the Lord would do what he promised. I can't blame him, even though taking God solely at his word is admirable. Thankfully for us, God makes that word visible. We are creatures of earth, and so in earthly guise, our God comes to say, See, I mean what I say. To Abraham, God appears as a smoking oven and flaming torch that passed through the bloody gauntlet of sacrifices that Abraham had hacked in two. A rather weird sight it must have been, but our God has been known to do some rather strange things. This was his way of making a covenant, a pact with Abraham. As much as to say, I'm as good as my word, and if I'm not, then may my fate be as one of these butchered beasts. But God was to be no butchered beast because he does stick to his word come hell or high water. But ironically, God was to become a baby, much like the baby he promised to Abraham. The Lord became his own promise. The gift giver became the gift. And that gift is enough for you. For that gift is all there is. Abraham was to get his son, grandchildren, the Holy Land, the whole shebang. All we get is a baby. Yet that baby is our world and much more. He made those stars that Abraham could not count. He knitted together in their mother's wounds all those babies who would call Abraham father. He came to reveal that God cannot stop giving the very best. Jesus explodes our small conceptions of a small giving God. There is no war within you that Jesus cannot end with peace. There is no wound in your soul so deep that he cannot heal it with his love. Your love may be as bl- your life may be as bloody and sickening as those cut-up corpses through which God passed as the oven and torch, but God will still pass through. In fact, he'll do better. He'll stop in the midst of the slaughter your life has become and start putting you back together again. Only he can do that, and he does it well, for being good and doing good for you is what he's all about. Come outside and stand beside Abraham. Count those stars so shall your gifts be. Go to the beach and count the grains of sand. So shall be the number of times God blesses you. Travel to Bethlehem and stand before the manger. 
There you shall see in a new and living way the oven and torch of God. That baby, become man, become sacrifice, become victor, become almighty king at the Father's right hand. He shall pass through the bloody mess of your life and bring healing. He cannot do otherwise, for love compels him to do only what is good for you. Love him as Abraham did. Befriend him as Abraham did. Believe in him as Abraham did. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shall be your shield, your very great reward. So God here comes to Abram and promises him all of these things. And now we're expecting in Genesis 16 to turn and say, Abram waited for years because God had made that covenant with him. But that is not at all what we read, is it? We read in Genesis chapter 16, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So God had made a promise, gone through the pieces, said, May I cease to be God and become like these pieces and become butchered myself if I refuse to give you a child. Well, Sarai still says, uh, still no child. So she has a female servant, Egyptian servant, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So I noticed, by the way, she says, the Lord has prevented me from doing this. Well, in a sense, yes, that's true. The Lord had not opened her womb yet, but he had promised that one day he would. So notice the lack of faith. And this is so important for you and me because you and me still struggle with faith, don't we? We still struggle to believe God's promises, his word. No matter how often God shows us, our sinful self still wants to doubt God's promises to us. His promises of forgiveness and cleansing and, and taking away our shame and, and his ability to change our lives and to give us repentance and faith in his promises and, and the fact that all things work together for good, no matter how deep the suffering in this world is, we still doubt those promises and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where Sarai is at. Yeah, the Lord hasn't done it yet. We've been in this land, as we'll find out, 10 years. We've been here 10 years. I've waited a decade for this promise. Well, maybe the Lord wants me to do something about it. Well, actually, the Lord doesn't, because the only thing they do is mess it up, because we see Hagar conceives, and uh, she looks upon Sarai with contempt. And of course, it's understandable. Here's this young girl, uh, and she has conceived where uh, Sarai had never been able to, and, and maybe now she's feeling a bit, uh, a bit arrogant, uh, uh, superior. Uh, look what I was able to do. Maybe the Lord has blessed me. Maybe I am the one. And, uh, and so, in a sense, you know, really, she's caught here. And, and, and by the way, it's important for us to note what happens here is a common practice that was done in the ancient Middle East, Near East back then. Um, so while it is wrong what they're doing, taking a servant girl and giving her to uh, the husband in order to have children for the family by her, it's important to note this is the way the world worked. So what's happening is, uh, this is morally wrong, by the way, but what is happening here also is they're acting like the world whenever they go here and, and do this. Abram and Sarai are doubting God and acting like the world the way they're doing this. 
Remember, God tells us, do not be friends with the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And that's what Abram and Sarai are doing here. They're loving the world and the things in this world, and they're doubting God's promise to them. And so eventually, Sarai gets caught in this. Uh, Abram, uh, Sarai deals harshly with the girl, and she runs away. And here we find her running away by a spring of water in the wilderness. And here she is, and we wonder what's going to happen with Hagar. Well, here's another article from Chad Bird called, Why is God Punishing Me? He says, um, the only person who named God in the Old Testament was an unmarried pregnant refugee, a woman on the run, a slave with zero rights, an outsider who was the victim of an old man and old woman who took advantage of her young womb to make a child they could claim as their own. She is Hagar the Egyptian servant of Abraham and Sarah, whom God discovered in a God-forsaken place at the end of her rope when it felt all the world was against her. Hagar is the patron saint of those the world uses up and throws away. When I pulled up alongside the convenience store on Friday to grab a cup of coffee, I saw him. A man on the sidewalk hunched over a small, dirty bag between his feet. It was all his earthly possessions, three changes of clothing he'd picked up from goodwill. I bought my coffee, came back outside, and sat alongside him. I'm Chad, I said, and stuck out my hand. He shook it and said, I'm Scott. His name is Scott. Did you hear that? Not bum, not loser, not vagrant, not dopehead, not panhandler, not get away from me. His name is Scott. His mother gave him that name when 50-something years ago she cradled him in her arms. His friends call him that. His wife, who ran off seven months ago and took what little they had together, including his son, she called him that. And God, as he looks down upon this outsider, this man who has lost virtually everything, he calls him that too. His name is Scott. I don't know why God is punishing me, he said as we talked, and the words rang true. I've said them myself, as perhaps you have, when all around you are the pieces of a life that exploded into unrecognizable shards. What have I done to make God mad? Why has he turned against me? Why is God punishing me? Hagar sat in the desert alone, her few possessions at her feet, wondering where God was. Scott sat in his concrete and asphalt desert, alone, possessing fear and regret, and worst of all, a cancer of despair, excuse me, if I can get this word, metastasizing in his soul. We talked for a few minutes, I mostly listened. I encouraged him, gave him some money, tried my best to show him compassion, and said a prayer with him before I left. We shook hands once more, and I got in my truck to drive away. As I rolled down the street, away from Scott, I thought of the woman who, long ago, named God. And I said another prayer that our Lord would do for my brother what he did for Hagar, and for all of us. In Hagar's moment of deepest need, the messenger of Yahweh appeared to her. He told her, to return to Abraham and Sarah. He told her that he would multiply her offspring so greatly they couldn't be numbered. And he told her to name her son Ishmael, which means God hears. Her baby boy embodied answer to prayer. The messenger or angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament is another name for the Son of God. It was Jesus who appeared to Hagar, comforted her, and gave her the promise of future blessings. It was Jesus who came to her when it seemed everything and everyone else had let her down. Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, El Roy, which means the God 
who sees. She gave Jesus that name. He is Elroy. Christ is never blind to our suffering, our loneliness, our heartbrokenness. He is the God who sees. He saw Hagar. He sees Scott. He sees us, even when it feels like we're buried so deep in the darkness of addiction, depravity, divorce, bankruptcy, or depression that even divine eyes can't penetrate the blackness enveloping us. Jesus is Elroy, the God who sees. Out of the depths we cry to him, and from those same depths he whispers, I'm here, I am with you. You can't see me, but reach out your hand and take mine. Run your fingers over my skin. Feel that scar? Now reach up to my side and touch me here. Feel that scar? Now reach your hand up to my face. Feel that wet skin? That's me weeping with you, for you. I love you. Those scars are for your healing. These tears will moisten, will moisten your withered hope. I am Jesus, your brother and your Lord. I am Elroy, the God who sees. Of all the names for Jesus, Elroy has become one of my favorites. This friend of sinners, this companion of outsiders, this God who sees, he sees you too. And in his eyes is a world of compassion that will never end. A compassion that flows from him through us and into the world including the most down-and-out lives in our world, to help them see that there is a God who sees and cares and loves. So there's Hagar. She comes back because of the Christ who comes to her. And then Abram and Sarai have to wait for years. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And then it's not till Abram is 99 years old that God shows up to see him again. And he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So God comes to Abram and changes his name. And he changes the name of his wife. And he, he promises, I am going to give you this child. And I, make my, I reiterate my covenant. And he gives him the sign of circumcision. And he says, from Sarai, now Sarah, I am going to give this child. And notice, by the way, he doesn't give them the promised child until he first changes their names. Names in the Old Testament were very important, right? They don't simply say uh, the, the sound of the name that you're supposed to call them, but they express uh, the character, the existence, the reputation, who you are. And so what God is doing whenever he changes their names, it's, it's a sign and a symbol of a change of status. You used to be Abram, now you're Abraham. You used to be Sarai, now you're Sarah. You belong to me. And similarly, God changes our names. In the waters of baptism, we are renamed for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are buried with and in Christ, and we were raised in Christ. Our new name is put on our foreheads so that now we are no longer sinner, but we are now saint. And here we come in Genesis 17, because even here, 
you'll notice that Abram says, oh, oh Lord, um, you know, uh, <laughs> they laugh. Uh, she said, uh, Sarah, Abram laughs, says, oh, that God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, right? He says, oh, you know, because, uh, no, you know, um, are, are you serious? You're still going to give Sarah, Sarah a child. And God says, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. Let's see what he says here. This is Genesis 17, when God drags his feet. For most of us, waiting on God is not funny at all. It makes us wonder if he cares if he has forgotten us. In our darkest hours, many even wonder if the atheists are right, if our prayers are nothing more than sick words vomited into an empty heaven. They are the only couple in the Bible who laugh at God. Abraham first, and later his wife Sarah. And who could blame them, for the scenario is hilarious. They wait a quarter of a century for God to make good on his promise to give them a child. It seems a comedy in the making, for Abraham is 75 years old, and Sarah, 65, when he first makes the promise. People that old don't buy pampers. But there stood God saying, Oh, but you will. So they wait. And they wait. For 25 years, these aging lovebirds do their lovemaking, but no baby making. The final time God assures them that they'll have a son, Abraham falls on his face and laughs. And Sarah later giggles like a schoolgirl. Quite fittingly, therefore, when their baby boy is born the next year, they name him Laughter, or as we know him, Isaac. I'm glad Abraham and Sarah could laugh. I think most of us wouldn't have found this scenario all that funny. In fact, when we wait on God to make good on his promises, even for a few weeks or months, we don't laugh. We hurt. We murmur. Often we get mad at God for dragging his feet. It is perhaps no surprise that one of the most common questions in the Psalms is, O Lord, how long? Now there's a prayer we can say amen to. O Lord, how long until you take away the cancer that's attacking my body? O Lord, how long will I get turned away from every company I apply to? O Lord, how long will my child be in and out of rehab? O Lord, how long will my husband and I languish in this dying marriage? O Lord, how long will you drag your feet while our souls are sinking in despair? For most of us, waiting on God is not funny at all. It makes us wonder if he cares, if he has forgotten us. If in our darkest hours, many even wonder if the atheists are right, if our prayers are nothing more than these, uh, oh, I guess maybe I, I, sh I just read that, didn't I? Sorry about that. Here is the truth. God is there. God does care. Heaven is not empty, but a fool of a God who thinks of nothing but you night and day. As Isaiah says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God does indeed remember, but his remembering is unique. It has one ultimate goal, to join you, body and soul, to the body and soul of Jesus Christ. Every time we pray, O oh Lord, how long? The answer is always the same. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. 3. You may object, but that's no answer. Oh, but it is. It is a true answer, and it is the best answer. God doesn't give us a timetable. He gives us his son. And for him, we don't have to wait a single second. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's already accomplished. The Father plunged you into the water wet with Jesus. 
in that water and what you saw, you know, you were symbolically joined to Christ on the cross. There your old life bled away and there your new life began as Jesus carried you in his body out of the grave on Easter. Your life is hidden the way a heart and lungs and bones and blood are hidden inside a person for you are the body of Christ. You are hidden in him and hidden with him in the father. And if you're that far into God, there's no getting out. So will the father answer your specific how long prayers? Of course he will. He who asks receives. He who seeks finds. She who knocks the door will be open to her. The God who goes so far as to count your tears and keep them in a bottle is certainly not going to ignore your pleas for mercy. But as you await the answer to those prayers, know that your prayers have already been answered in Christ. Your life, your heartaches, your tears and disappointments, they are all hidden with Christ in God too. He takes them all in when he takes you into himself. The ways of God are hilarious, so outlandish, so crazy, so foolish, that sometimes the only thing we can do is laugh. There we were dead, now in Christ we live. There we were, thinking there's no way we'll ever conceive hope again, and now hope grows within us like Isaac in Sarah's womb. It's funny, the weird ways of God. He's always full of surprises. For there's nothing more surprising in this world than a love that knows no bounds, no timetables, but that knows you and holds you tight. Sometimes the best amen sounds like laughter. So there, they're promised this child, right? And, uh, and God says it's going to happen. Eventually in Genesis chapter 18, again, we see uh, these men come and visit Abram, Abraham at his tent, and he talks to one in particular man who is God here uh, appearing to him. And uh, he promises him that within a year, you're going to have a child. And also he said, and this is where Sarah laughs and says, oh my, you know, that, that is not going to happen. And, uh, and then also he tells him about his purpose that he's also going to come and judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham knows about Lot living there and he's very worried about him. And so he argues or he, he, uh, he questions God and says, will you destroy this whole city? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Will you not do what is right? And we see the depth of God's compassion and and love and mercy. And then eventually this leads us into chapter 19. After God talks to Abraham, then God goes and rescues a lot. And this is a helpful thing here. This is from Chad Bird again. The story of Sodom is much more than homosexuality. It's about much more than homosexuality. And he says this, a quick scan of any map will reveal towns all around the U.S. with biblical place names. There's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and uh, Bethany, Oklahoma, and Goshen, Indiana, just to name a few. But you'll find no Sodom, Arizona, or Gomorrah, Tennessee. Towns totally annihilated by God don't make for popular namesakes. No community wants that kind of backstory. But what exactly is the backstory, the full backstory of Sodom and Gomorrah? What prompted such judgment against them? Contrary to what you'll hear in most sermons, the issue in Sodom was much more than homosexuality. It is deeper and more pervasive. The root cause of their raising was rejection of the God who is mercy. We often forget that before God destroyed these cities, he had saved them. They were the recipients of divine mercy. When foreign armies sacked their cities, God sent Abraham to rescue them, Genesis chapter 14. 
He pursued these armies with a small force of men, defeated them, and brought back all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with his nephew Lot and the other citizens who had been taken captive. The patriarch gave everything back to the king of Sodom and demanded nothing in return for himself. In Abraham's own words, he wouldn't keep a thread or a sandal thong or anything else that belonged to Sodom's king, lest that ruler say he had made Abraham rich. Though the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord, chapter 13, verse 13, nevertheless, he acted graciously toward them in the person and work of his chosen servant. So what went wrong? What happened in the intervening years between their deliverance by Abraham and the announcement of their impending destruction? The same thing that has happened over and over throughout the history of humanity. The merciful actions of God towards undeserving sinners were forgotten. Like Nineveh, which repented when it heard the preaching of Jonah, but later slipped right back into evil and was eventually destroyed. Like Jerusalem, which seesawed between repenting and rebelling until it too was finally ravaged by the Romans. So Sodom and Gomorrah, one-time beneficiaries of divine deliverance, treated that gift as trash until finally their cities were reduced to smoldering ashes. In the rest of the scriptures, Sodom and Gomorrah became emblematic of cities, nations, and indeed a world that steadfastly refuses to believe in the God of mercy and truth and justice, and instead follow their own hearts. Isaiah calls the hearers of his day the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah, chapter 1, verse 10 of Isaiah. Why? Because while going hog-wild in outward religiosity, their hands were soaked in blood. He told them, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Through Jeremiah 2, God says that his people have become to him like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah, chapter 23, verse 14 of Jeremiah. Why? Because the prophets of Jerusalem were committing adultery and walking in falsehood. Not only did they, not, not only did they do nothing to stop evil, they actively encouraged it. Ezekiel, too, chastises the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel for acting like Sodom. Through this prophet, God says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel sixteen forty nine through 50 on the night before Sodom was destroyed, the men of the city, young and old, attempted to gang-rape the angels, disguised as men, who were guests in Lot's home. But this attempted violence, as horrific as it was, was an outgrowth of a more pervasive evil within. The ultimate source of sin in Sodom, Gomorrah, Nineveh, Jerusalem, and every other city is the ultimate source of sin in our hearts. We do not fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We reject the God who is love itself and instead set up idols of pleasure or power or falsehood in the shrines of our hearts. And from there, as from a poisoned spring, flow forth all the tributaries of evil in our lives and in the world. One more serious problem is not sins, but sin itself. The problem is not what we do, but who we are. We are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners, and therefore we sin. This was as true for the Sodomites as for the San Antonians or the New Yorkers. That's why God does not merely fix us, as if we're an old junker that just needs an overhaul. We don't need to be fixed. We need to be recreated. What we need is to come to an end, to fall headfirst into a grave flooded with water, drown in that dark pool, and rise again to newness of life in Christ. 
The Father remakes us in the waters of baptism to bear the image and likeness of Jesus, who makes all things new. He removes our hearts of Sodom to give us a heart of Zion, a heart pumped full of the atoning blood of Jesus. Far from condemning us, he declares us innocent, for his Son has already become the guilty one in our place. In the eyes of God, you are pure, beautiful, loved, welcomed, perfect, for he sees every inch of you through the prism of Christ. In Christ, you are not a failure, a felon, or a freak, but a friend of God. In Christ, you are not dirty or depraved, for you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been made new. Your past does not define you. Your sins do not define you. Christ does. The story of Sodom is about much more than homosexuality. It is ultimately about the God of mercy, the God who is your father in Jesus Christ, the father who rescues you as he rescued Lot, the father who makes you saints, the father who is patient, forgiving, and loving to all. For all have been reconciled to him in the cross of Jesus Christ. So we see there, don't we? Uh, we're all Sodom sinners, aren't we, really? We all deserve the, the judgment that falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. We all deserve. Um, and we all are owed, are owed that. And um, yeah, that, and, and that's what's amazing is God rescues Lot. And we see Lot does not end well, as you can see in the very tail end of, of chapter 19. And yet we're told he was righteous Lot. Uh, because of his faith in Christ. Um, God's people can be really bad and rotten sinners, uh, but God has mercy on them. He works in ways that are so weird and so and so weird to us, at least. But I'm so thankful that he does work in weird ways because that means there's hope for me and you. Um, yeah. And, and one thing I want to I be very clear about, and I need to be honest about here, is the fact that, you notice here, I, I mentioned about the waters of baptism and such. And earlier, I inserted the word symbolic or something into baptism because, you know, Chad Bird is a, is a, is a Lutheran. I, I think much of what he, I think what he says here is awesome, but it's just important for us to be reminded of the fact that, too, as a little side note here, as Baptists, we don't believe that baptism uh, uh, automatically changes our status in the sense of, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't uh, automatically cause us to be born again. Lutherans, though they believe and agree with us on the most important things like justification by faith alone, that we are saved only because of God's grace that we receive through faith, they do have a different doctrine of baptism than we would. Um, so they would believe that baptism does have a regenerating power of sorts. Um, and you would, I'd encourage you, if you're interested more in that, to go read um, their, their writings uh, to talk about that. And they have their reasons for them, which I am not persuaded of, uh, nor is our church, nor is the, uh, uh, the Baptist tradition persuaded of. But the reason why, uh, and so I just want to be, be clear about that, because I did insert the word uh, symbolic when I saw that earlier, uh, just because I didn't want to confuse you. Uh, but I think the, the bigger truth we can still appreciate, right? Because our baptism does picture to us and preach to us the fact that uh, just as we go under the waters of baptism, so we have by faith and by our union with Christ uh, been uh, drowned with him in his death uh, on the cross, right? Because of our union with him. So we would, we would nuance that a little bit, but the basic message is exactly the same still, right? Because uh, 
we would still believe that baptism preaches that gospel to us, that, um, that um, we, just as we are washed in the waters of baptism, that pictures to us and preaches to us that by faith we are washed and made new with the blood of Christ. So just wanted to give that little caveat. Uh, uh, just wanted to, to let you know that. Um, so anyway, just for, just for your information as a public service announcement. So, uh, Genesis chapter 20, though, after this, right? Abraham still has not learned his lesson. He lies again to Abimelech about who his wife is. And then in chapter 21, Isaac is born. And the promised child is born. And we see what happens is that uh, eventually Hagar and Ishmael have to be cast out. And God says, yes, allow this to go forth. And... um, God takes care of Hagar and Ishmael, uh, but Isaac is the child of promise, the child through whom the covenant will be established and through whom ultimately Christ comes. And, and then, God, and then Abraham, Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech. And then we come to this powerful, powerful passage in Genesis chapter 22. I mean, this is, this is right there in one of the... Um, Uh, mountaintop passages of the whole Bible, right? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, you mean the one that was just born, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So he's told to go take his child, and offer him as a sacrifice. This is Genesis 22, and this is Chad Bird's article, On This Mountain, You Can See the Whole Bible. All sorts of weird things happen in the Bible. A snake strikes up a conversation with a naked woman. A donkey chews out a cursing preacher. Ravens fly breakfast to a hungry prophet. But it's not just animals. A sea unzips its surface and body bags a whole army of Egyptians. Rivers give a round of applause. All of creation has a part to play in the saga of salvation. Let me tell you about one of those characters in this saga. It's not a snake or a donkey or sea. It's a mountain. Perhaps you've never heard this story before. If not, I bet it's one you won't soon forget. There's a man stretched atop firewood that's been arranged on a makeshift altar. There's, a fa- there's his father standing above him, the hilt of a knife clasped in his hand, the blade lifted high. Take your son, God had told Abraham, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That's where they are, on Moriah, the place where the father is to sacrifice his son. Yet he doesn't. A split second before the knife plummets, an angel stops Abraham. In the stead of his son, the father offers a ram caught in a nearby thicket as a burnt offering. Here is where the story begins. On Mount Moriah, God provides a substitute to die in Isaac's place. Fast forward a few centuries. In the latter years of his reign, David has incensed the Lord by commanding a census to be taken of all Israel. 1 Chronicles 21. Catastrophic casualties follow as a plague steamrolls through the land. Finally, a skyscraping angel unsheaths his sword over Jerusalem. David hurries up Moriah to a threshing floor owned by a local farmer. He buys the plot of ground and the oxen used for threshing. He builds an altar, kills the beasts, and flames fall from the sky upon the altar to consume their bodies. 
The plague stops. The angel sheathes his sword. Zion is saved. On Mount Moriah, God provides oxen to die in order that his people might be spared. The son of David, wise Solomon, built the temple of the Lord on this exact spot, 2 Chronicles 3.1. On this mountain, where the promised son Isaac had been spared by the sacrifice of a ram in this in his stead. On this mountain, where Jerusalem was spared by the sacrifice of oxen in their stead. On this very mountain, Moriah, the house of God was erected and the massive altar set up. Here, year after year, morning and evening, the blood of cattle, sheep, goats, and birds was spilled, their bodies reduced to ashes. Until the time appointed, these beasts died in the stead of God's people. They bore the guilt of sinners. Onto their heads was transferred the sin of the congregation, and through their blood shed and bodies burnt, the Lord provided cleansing and forgiveness to his people. On Mount Moriah, God provided sacrifice after sacrifice in order that his people might be spared. But the story of Moriah was far from over. For these three stories are but the pre-story to why this mountain is so important. For what Abraham and David and Solomon did not do, could not do, a greater one did. Jesus wrote the last chapter of Moriah. He made this mountain his own. He climbed Mount Moriah to enter his father's house time and again. He taught on this Mount Moriah, on this mountain. He overturned the tables of the money changers on this mountain. On Moriah, he declared, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. He spent the last week of his life on this mountain, and he brought this mountain's story to its peak. Jesus was not killed in Bethlehem as a baby, as Herod intended. He was not thrown off the cliff in Nazareth after he had angered the hometown crowd with his preaching. He was not murdered in a Samaritan village. He couldn't be, for it was a divine necessity that he die in Jerusalem, where Moriah is. He is the promised seed of Abraham, the new and better Isaac. He is the promised son of David, the new and better Solomon. He is the tabernacle and temple of God, and he is the son who is not spared, but given up for us all. At his death, the angels outside Eden unsheath their, sword, their swords and welcome us back into the paradise of God. He is the Lamb of God upon the altar of the cross who transforms Golgotha into Moriah. He is the substitute by whose sacrifice we are not just spared, but welcomed into the life and family of the Father. When Abraham offered a ram in the stead of Isaac, he called the name of this place Yahweh Yireh, meaning the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Indeed, it will, and indeed it was. God provided his son, and in that son, we receive everything. All right. So God shows forth this beautiful passage in chapter 22. And then we get to a passage in 23, a very interesting passage. Because we're told here, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. He comes to weep for Sarah and he buys a field so he can bury her. And again, we talked about the only land he really owned at Abraham, Abraham owned was this burial plot. And, uh, you can imagine how much hurt 
it must have brought to Abraham to lose his partner in life, Sarah, after all these years. Must have hurt the old man a lot. And uh, so here, um, let's wrap up here. This is Genesis 23. When focus on the family becomes idolatry. She is never mentioned in Genesis 22. God is, Abraham is, Isaac is, but Sarah is missing from the story. Did she know that God had decided to test her husband? Was she aware that this testing was the sacrifice of their one and only son? When she kissed Isaac goodbye for this odd journey to the land of Moriah, did she have any notion that God had commanded her husband to lay their son atop an altar, sink a knife into his heart, and burn his body to ashes? We don't know what Sarah knew. We do know that after the story is over, after Abraham passes the test, after Isaac is spared when the blade is in midair, that Sarah dies. Jewish tradition sees no coincidence in the fact that her passing in Genesis 23 follows immediately after her son's near sacrifice in Genesis 22. When it says Sarah died and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, it means that Abraham went from Mount Moriah to mourn for her. These traditions suggest that when his when this mother heard of what was to take place on that mountain, assuming as she did that Isaac would in fact be sacrificed, she cried out and breathed her last. Her son was her life, therefore his death was her death. Children are a gift of the Lord, the psalmist sings. Oh, indeed they are. A parent's heart is inextricably bound to the heart of his child. We can understand why, according to Jewish tradition, this mother died upon hearing of the assumed death of her boy. Likewise, we can hear the depth of agony seeping through the cracks in David's broken heart as he cries out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, my son Absalom. Would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. 2 Samuel 18.33 I think I speak for most mothers and fathers when I say that my greatest fear is the death of one of my children. This parent-to-child love makes it all the harder to hear Jesus' words in the gospel reading for this coming Sunday. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10.37 It is certainly fitting that Jesus immediately adds, He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. These words do indeed feel like a heavy cross to bear. But what does it mean to love someone or something more than we love Jesus? It means that they were formed as a gift. It means that they who were formed as a gift, we transformed into a God. You see, idols are not mere blocks of wood or stone before whom pagans kneel. Idols are beloved things beloved people, whom we fear or love or trust more than God. We are all at heart idolaters, for we are prone to turn presence from heaven into the presence of divinity on earth. We break no commandment more than the first. You shall have no other gods. In fact, every law we break is also a breaking of the first. For if our hearts truly and wholly belonged to the Lord, we would keep the whole law, Because we do not fear, love, and trust in him above all things, all things become opportunities for sin, including the gifts of sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives. Focus on the family can easily devolve into a misfocus of gifts as gods. We do not love these gifts less by loving Jesus more. Quite the contrary, the deeper our love for God, the deeper also shall be our love for our children. Love is the embodiment of a life lived in and for another. 
Love toward children or parents or spouses goes idolatrously wrong, not when we love them too much, but when we love them too little. For how can love be true love when it stands against the God who is love itself? How can I say I love my child when I make him into an idol? How can I say I love my wife when I, make her, when I love her more than I love God? No, I am not loving too much when I'm committing idolatry. I'm loving too little. For it is the selfish, self-loving side of me that compels me towards the transformation of gifts into God's. That is why my life constantly returns, indeed revolves around, the man from Nazareth who hangs between heaven and earth, painting the world white by bleeding wounds. There, in that dying God, I find not only the very incarnation of love, but forgiveness for all my self-love. In that God, all my gods die. In him, I die. And as I lose my life, and his love finds me, I gain life in his giving love. I have no other gods besides Jesus Christ, because he is God of gods, Lord of lords, who deepens my love for himself by pouring his love into me. And that love of Christ flows from me to others, to my children, to my wife, even to my enemies. I will never be worthy of Christ, but Christ has counted me worthy by loving me unto death even unto death, even death on a cross. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is this Isaac who carried his own wood to the mountaintop where he was not spared but given up for us all, that all in him might become the chosen sons of the Father. Worthy is he and worthy are we in him to receive life and forgiveness and salvation, and honor, and heaven, and blessing, now and forever, and unto ages of ages. Well, there you have it. Genesis chapter 23, the, the life of suffering. And Abraham followed Christ and knew what it was to, uh, to love Christ more than even his own wife. He had to move on, didn't he? He, had, he loved her deeply and, uh, and so on. And, and we experience that same uh, separation between our loved ones, between believers and a family. And, uh, but our hope ultimately is in Christ, just as Abraham's was. I hope this has been uh, helpful. Uh, I've enjoyed these, these articles. I think they're, they're helpful for us as we, as we really seek to, uh, you know, meditate and think upon these these stories um, in a, in an amazing and in a I think a helpful new way. Uh, I uh, hope to be with you uh, next week, and I hope you're able to listen as well. And as we continue into Genesis chapter 24, we're going to go find Isaac's wife, and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, we'll see what God has in store for the next stage of His redemptive plan in the life of Isaac. Thank you for listening to this. Take care and God bless.